It's been a, a wonderful morning so far of worship, hasn't it? And we're going to continue that as we look to God's Word. We're going to exalt in the truths of God's Word, even in a passage that has to do with warning. And this is from Titus. So if you have your Bibles, I want to invite you to turn in them to the book of Titus. We're working our way through this amazing letter to Titus from the Apostle Paul. And today our passage, our text, is Titus 1, 10 through 16. While you're turning there, I'll just say thank you to everyone who served this weekend. I, many of you know we had a pastor's conference, the Cultivate Conference from Converge. It was hosted here at Faith. It was a wonderful time, really good preaching, really good fellowship among the pastors and families who came, and it was just a nice time. So thank you for everyone who served. There was a lot of serving that went on with worship and with food and with other things, so thank you. All right, Titus chapter 1, verses 10 through 16. The Word of God says, For there are many who are insubordinate, it's verse 10, empty talkers and deceivers, especially those of the circumcision party, they must be silenced since they are upsetting whole families by teaching for shameful gain what they ought not to teach. One of the Cretans, a prophet of their own, said, Cretans are always liars, evil beasts, lazy gluttons. This testimony is true. Therefore, rebuke them sharply that they may be sound in the faith, not devoting themselves to Jewish myths, and the commands of people who turn away from the truth. To the pure, all things are pure. But to the defiled and the unbelieving, nothing is pure. But both their minds and their consciences are defiled. They profess to know God, but they deny Him by their works. They are detestable, disobedient, unfit for any good work. Let's go to the Lord again. Father, we need, we need You right now. We need You to... Open our minds. We need you to help us to want to know what your word says. Even the willing to want to know this, Lord, it comes from you. And so, Father, I pray that your spirit be moving in our hearts and helping us to see that this word is precious and needed. We have no hope outside of this word. And so, Father, I pray that you would work here this morning so that we would long for your word. And Lord, I pray, right to the heart of this text, I pray that you would help us to be a church that so clings to the word that we, we won't listen to contrary voices, but that we will know that there are contrary voices, and we will be warned, and we will cling to the cross. We will cling to our only hope, our Savior, the Lord Jesus Christ. Lord, I pray that the gospel would be clear this morning to your people, that we would rejoice, we would leave here rejoicing in the work of Jesus Christ on the cross for us, that though we were sinners, Christ died for us, and through him and through him alone, we have life everlasting. Lord, help us to rejoice in that truth in our suffering, help us to rejoice as we go through hard things hard family relationships, hard marriages, hard seasons of health, 
hard times of loss. Father, I pray that you'd help us to cling to the cross. And Lord, I I need your help this morning. I need you to move in this place through the preaching of your word. It is your spirit that moves hearts. And so we pray together in one accord that you would do your work now. For your name, for your name's sake, for your glory, and for our good. In Jesus' name, amen. I hope that you have read the greatest novel that was ever written in the English language. That is The Pilgrim's Progress, if you're wondering. Because that will help you to really understand what I'm about to say. If you haven't read it, I think you can still track along. By the way, if you're looking for a a list of books to read so that you can understand this new preacher who talks about different books, I guess, uh, add to the list Pilgrim's Progress uh, to Chronicles of Narnia and Lord of the Rings. I think I think it would help you to understand most pastors these days, uh, but me for sure. All right, in, in John Bunyan's Pilgrim's Progress, the main character, his name is Christian, leaves his hometown, the city of destruction, in search of a much better place, the celestial city. After he heads out, he, he runs into a man named Evangelist who tells him to walk towards the light of the wicked gate, the wicked gate. And then after the wicked gate... Christian is told to follow the straight and narrow all the way to the celestial city. It's all about, it's an obviously an allegory of the Christian life. And Bunyan goes so far to help us see that, that he names all the characters in the books with kind, the kind of, he names each character with the kind of challenges that we face as Christians, or the kind of people that we run into in our journey after Christ. Thus, on his way to the wicked gate, Christian runs into Mr. Worldly Wise Man and Mr. Legality and Mr. Civility. And these guys persuade Christian to go another way. And of course, Christian nearly gets lost as he goes on those other ways before he thankfully runs back into Evangelist who urges him not to follow those other people in those other false ways, but to continue on the path that he instructed him to continue to the wicked gate, that following the light on the true way to the celestial city. And of course, in the course of his story, he runs into many who are there to waylay him. They are there not to help him in his pursuit after the celestial city, but are there to simply be obstacles and diversions and to try to get him off of the path. And Christian learns in the by and by not to give any ear to them. And he keeps on until he finally reaches the celestial city. That's a great book. You should read it. Although I think I just gave it all away. Last week we looked at Titus 1, 5 through 9. And the importance of an elder holding and, and a Christian holding fast to the trustworthy word as taught. He, the elder, and we, the Christian... We all must remember, remember, remember the Word of God. And this week, we need to consider together one of the big reasons. There are many along our way in this Christian life who will intentionally lead us apart, away from Christ. Away from the right way. Off to places where we will surely get lost and be lost and perish if we linger. There are real life Mr. Worldly Wisdoms and Mr. Legality, and they make seemingly compelling cases to go another way. 
to go after other gospels, as it were. So that's where we're going this morning. The importance of holding on to the trustworthy word because there are many who would urge us and deceive us to loosen our grip a bit on Jesus and maybe try some other ways. We're going to be introduced today to Mr. False Teacher. He is an ancient character for sure, much older than the book The Pilgrim's Progress. He's been around for all of church history. He was causing trouble to the people of God way back in the early days of Christianity on a Mediterranean island called Crete. And sadly, that character is still around today in America, in Sioux Falls, in our context. Mr. False Teacher is still at it. He is everywhere the church is found. He poses a very real danger to you and to us as a church. And we need to be aware of him if we're to, to, to hold fast to Christ, if we're to protect elders, if we're to protect the flock of God. From this passage, I want to help you see who Mr. False Teacher is and then help all of us to see how to rightly respond to him so that our hope and our confidence would remain in Jesus Christ. And so that perhaps the Lord in his kindness might draw their hearts to the hope of Christ. In verse 10, Paul leads with the scope of the problem. He says, there are many, get that, there are many who are insubordinate, which I think means not submitting to the gospel as the apostles taught. Many who resist faith alone in Christ alone, and these guys are teaching others. There were many then, Mr. False Teachers, it is a big issue, and Paul wants us to be able to recognize them. There are many. You, you might have heard jokes. I don't, I don't tell jokes um, purposefully, but you might have heard jokes. I'm, I'm kind of setting this up with sort of a joke, but it's not a joke. Not, not telling joke. I don't tell jokes. But you might have heard the jokes that begin with, you might be a blank if blank is true. Have you heard those kind of jokes? I think Jeff Foxworthy made those kind of famous. You, you might be from Nebraska if you switch your AC to heat in the same day, you know, like every day. Or you might be from South Dakota if you measure distance in minutes, not miles. I, you might be from, and I won't say where, but you might be from such and such a place if you mow your grass and you, you find a car that you had misplaced. <laughs> Well, this is no joke, but to help you remember this, I'm going to frame these five things that I'm about to give you from this text in that same kind of pattern. You might be a false teacher if blank. These five things will help us spot a false teacher, and maybe they will serve as a warning for us so that we might at once recognize the false teacher for who he is and, and also fear being one. The first one is that you might be a false teacher if you do ministry for selfish gain. Look at verse 11. They must be silenced since they are upsetting whole families by teaching for shameful gain what they ought not to teach. False teachers are never motivated by the glory of Christ. They are never motivated truly by the joy of the nations in the gospel or the exaltation of God in the hearts of his people. 
They're never motivated by what would be your greatest good. Christ in you, the the hope of glory. Never motivated by that. Not a false teacher. They are hoping to gain something themselves by teaching to you things that they ought not to teach. It might be money. It might be money. Often it's money. There are a lot of people who have enriched themselves on the back of the church by preaching what they ought not to preach. And many, especially in our prosperous West, are almost, are almost shameless in their appeal for money for their own personal greedy gain. They would certainly fall under that. But shameful gain or dishonest gain simply means some advantage to which they are not actually entitled. So it could be money or fame or pleasure. A, a pastor who is angling and platforming with the hope of making a name for himself ought to think carefully about the phrase shameful gain, right? Could also be other forms of gain, smaller forms of gain, more subtle, more clever. Gain like influence or prestige or to be esteemed in the church or to have influence over a ministry, to be thought much of, to have sway over people or sway over the direction of a church. But the point is, anytime we are teaching and the motivation is some sort of personal gain, we should beware. Anytime it's about us, we should beware. If these motives are there, you, you might be a false teacher. And I think it's okay to say might. You might be a false teacher. Because I know that motives are a mixed bag. I know because i got to wrestle with this, right? Motives are a mixed bag. I, I know that I constantly have to check my motive. I constantly have... I, I had to check my motive this morning. Why am I getting up before your people, God, and preaching your word? Oh, help it not to be because I want them to think I'm something. All these terrible motives flood our hearts. We have to check our motives. I can preach with the aim to impress. I can, I can hope that you might think I am great. And I have to get before the Lord every Sunday asking Him to purge from my heart those kind of sinful motives so that I am not preaching or teaching for shameful gain. If I were to let those motives go unchecked, I would no doubt begin to teach for shameful gain what I ought not to teach. But that's the first one. You might be a false teacher if you are in it for yourself, if you are teaching for shameful gain. The next one is also from verse 11. You might be a false teacher if you are ruining entire families by your teaching. This obviously makes us wonder about the nature of the false teaching that was there that Paul was confronting there on Crete. There are a lot of clues, I think, in this passage. Whole families are being ruined and upset by this teaching. That's, that's one clue. More hints, though, you can see verse 14. These are Jewish myths. These are commands of men who turn away from God. Another verse 15, to the pure, all things are pure, but to the defiled and unbelieving, nothing is pure. These people are calling pure things impure. You put all this together, and it seems to be some sort of legalism being taught to the Christians of Crete from those who supposedly came to Christianity from Jewish backgrounds says they are of the circumcision party. Perhaps there was an emphasis on abstaining from certain things that Christians should be free to enjoy, things that are pure. 
These are commands of men, not commands of God. And these teachers seem to be adding these to the gospel. If you want to be truly spiritual, you need to abstain from this or add this in addition to Christ. It might have ruined entire families because these things being taught possibly could have been to abstain from marriage. That was a problem among the Corinthians. Or abstinence within marriage. That was also probably a thing with the Corinthians. My personal theory is that they were teaching that we should abstain from bacon. Which I am sure would have caused great consternation in my home, for example. It could have been unsettling whole families because of the divisions it was causing in the church. Even say between husbands and wives as they took sides. Parents and children. We don't really know the original context on Crete. Perhaps it's that not knowing that makes this so helpful though. You know what I mean? Not knowing helps us to just apply this. We don't know the specific thing. So we can apply the principles here to the false teaching in our context. There are certainly teachings today among, the, uh, among supposed Christians and supposed Christian churches that cause great disruption among families. False teaching on morality, for example. False teaching on what marriage is. These are right up front in our culture today and in our churches and cause entire families to be ruined and unsettled. But I think there's also a broader principle here that we should glean, and that is that false teaching is always destructive to unity. False teaching is always destructive to unity. That's one of the reasons why it is so dangerous for a church or even for a family, because it's disruptive to unity. And you might push back. You might, I hope, I hope some of you push back a little bit on that and think, well, Mike, wait, isn't the gospel itself divisive? Isn't the gospel, doesn't the gospel, it's, didn't Jesus teach that it divides? And I would say, yes, of course it's divisive. But it is also the single most powerful unifying factor in the universe, the gospel. It divides those who don't believe in Christ alone from those who do. That's true. Lots of divisions because of that. But among those who trust the gospel, the gospel brings about a unity that transcends all natural demographic divisions. All the categories that formerly divided us. Just consider one, one, one quick verse, it's just a, this is a side thing, but Galatians 3.28, there is neither Jew nor Greek, there is neither slave nor free, there is neither male nor female, for you are all one in Christ Jesus. You are all one. Friends, that is mind-blowing unity, isn't it? And right at the heart of that is, that is, is what the true gospel does among Christians. It unites them in Christ and destroys all the old barriers. Christians end up, end up being known and recognized for their love for one another across those divides. A Christian landowner and a Christian homeless man become brothers. A very educated person and a very uneducated person, a, a poor person and a rich person, a man who comes from the ethnic majority along with one who comes from an ethnic minority. They're all one in Christ. Isn't that amazing? False teaching disrupts that. False teaching always divides. 
You might be a false teacher if you divide families and if you divide the family of God. Oh, Christian, you ought to treat the unity of the church as the precious gift from God that it is and be wary to do anything to divide brothers and sisters in Christ. The next one is that you might be a false teacher if your teaching leads to bad bad character and bad behavior. The fruit of false teaching is not the peaceable fruit of righteousness or the holiness without which no one will see the Lord. It is not Christ-likeness or humility or patience or love or joy. False teachers are characterized by words that are strewn throughout this passage, unpleasant words. Words like insubordinate, deceivers, defilers, people who are defiled, detestable, unfit for any good work, lazy, lying, gluttonous, evil. After we agreed to do this sermon series this fall, studying through the book of Titus, Pastor Thomas reached out to me and asked me if I had thought of a title for the series so that he can get the ball rolling and get some artwork for it and those kind of things. I jokingly suggested that we should call the series Titus. Liars, evil beasts, lazy gluttons. Personally, I think that title has a pop to it, don't you? I might have even tried to get the sermon, this sermon title called that, but I was overruled. We went more conservatively on this. We call it Titus, ready for every good work. You're welcome. Of course, I nabbed that little joking title suggestion from one of the more difficult passages in Titus. Titus 1, 12 through 13, beginning of 13, says, one of the Cretans, a prophet of their own, said, Cretans are always liars, evil beasts, lazy gluttons. This testimony is true. It's not hard to understand that verse. The words of that verse are pretty easy to understand. It's just hard to understand what Paul meant and why he used it here. There are lots of thoughts on this, lots of writing on this, but probably the most it'd be most helpful to you if I just shared with you what I think it means. Paul nabbed this little gem from some Cretan writing. We don't know 100% from where. There's no extant sources, uh, though some in early church history made definite attribution to a Cretan poet. What we know is that a Cretan himself wrote about Cretans this way. These are stereotypes of the Cretan culture, not a racial slur. Don't confuse those two things. This is not a racial slur. These are stereotypes of the Cretan culture. In the ancient culture of Cretans, truth-telling was not a value. To speak like a Cretan was slang for saying you were lying, according to several ancient sources. The, the wider Cretan culture seems, it seems that the wider Cretan culture of that day was okay with telling lies. Evil beasts meant that they lived in ways that focused on their own benefit with no regard for the benefit of someone else. Like an evil beast, they would growl and bite and evil, like devour others to have their own food. They were lazy gluttons, meaning that they loved a full belly. They loved comfort, but maybe they didn't love the work that is required to get there. These are cultural stereotypes, not racial slurs, like me telling you that Russians scowl a lot in public and can be quite cold on the street. I told you that story a few weeks ago. That's true. That's not a racial slur against Russians. That's just a cultural stereotype. And I think Paul grabbed this 
little literary and cultural gem about the Cretans to characterize these false teachers. And what's amazing to me is that he, he's basically saying that these very religious teachers from, from, the, from a Jewish background, from the circumcision party, verse 10, live just like the stereotypical Cretan unbeliever. I mean, that's powerful when you think of it that way. These guys who, who thought themselves very religious were living just like the stereotypical Cretan unbeliever. These teachers don't value truth. I mean, if they did, they teach the word, right? If they love truth, they would proclaim Jesus and his sufficient death in our place and his resurrection for the forgiveness of sins and the forgiveness of sins that we have in him. They don't have regard for the needs of others like evil beasts. They will bite and devour and even deceive others for their own benefit. And the point is that false teaching leads to corrupt character. False teaching leads to false living. Truth begins not to matter so long as you are prevailing over your opponents. You can play loosey-goosey with the truth or frame things to fit your narrative so long as you win the argument. I mean, does that sound familiar, friends, to our context? It's everywhere in our culture. Truth is relative. Everyone has a spin on it. Everyone has a narrative, as it were. It's true in our culture, but friends, it should not be the culture of Christians. It should not be the culture of the church. We never spin truth. We don't have a narrative that's unique from reality. We have the truth. And so the character of the church, the character of a teacher, elder, pastor, ought to be one of truth. Christian. And truth leads us to holiness. False teaching leads us only to corruption. And that leads me to the next you might be. You might be a false teacher if you merely look religious. These dudes would not have owned the label false teacher. You know the labels they would love? They'd love, they'd love the label Christian or Christ follower or pastor or religious leader or spiritual person. Friends, no one is going to be swayed by a devil who shows up with glowing red eyes and a pitchfork in his hand. You're not going to be swayed by that kind of devil. I'm not going to be swayed away from Jesus by someone coming with a, like a, I love false teaching shirt or tattoo. Obvious lies are not compelling. And they're not all that dangerous to you and to me. And I think sometimes when we think of false teaching, we think it's so obvious, I'll just be able to tell, right, by the shirt they wear. Mr. Legalist and Mr. Morality and Mr. False Teacher are dangerous because they look so religious. They love to look pious. Don't believe someone just because they say they're Christians. The devil himself comes as an angel, appearing as an angel of light. These guys in Crete looked religious. And that leads me to the last one of my you might be a false teacher if list. You might be a false teacher if your actions actually deny Christ. They profess, look at verse 16 with me. They profess to know God, but they deny him by their works. 
Their actions revealed where their heart really was. They, they, they might, with their words, say that they're Christians. A tree can say that it's a lemon tree, but if there are apples on the boughs, you better wonder whether it's telling the truth or whether it's, in fact, an apple tree. Those who hold to the gospel are shaped by the gospel. Those who believe in Christ are shaped by Christ. Those who love God are transformed by God. The transforming work of God's spirit changes us. God changes us in Christ. And that transformation is the mark of a true Christian and a true Christian leader. Christians love one another in increasing measure. These These are true things about Christians. Christians are humble. Christians love the light. Christians hate gossip. Christians love mercy and peace and what is good and wholesome and right and true. In increasing measure, I mean, we grow in these things by God's grace. But that's what the true apple tree looks like or true lemon tree looks like. It has those kinds of fruits. If one's life betrays something else, something other than Christ at work, then perhaps he is professing to know God, but denying him by his works. You might be a false teacher if your profession and your life, profession of faith and your life, they don't match up. So those are the marks of a false teacher as I see them here. Perhaps there's more that I missed. The false teacher is selfishly motivated. He is motivated by, by shameful gain, not the glory of Christ, not the, not the hope and joy of the gospel, He divides Christians and even divides Christian families with his teaching. He is marked not by holiness, but by sinful and worldly characteristics. He looks religious, sounds religious, but he denies Christ with his actions. Now, let me just add one more from my own personal observation. I'm not seeing this here in this passage, but I have seen it in my experience. I think I can make the case from other passages, especially uh, one in 1 Corinthians. But here it is. A successful false teacher is often extremely gifted. They are often, not always, they are often phenomenal communicators. A a lot of those we know now to be false teachers got away with it for a very long time, even though they showed false teaching marks like you can see here. They got away with it because they had phenomenal gifts. They were able to communicate. They could turn a phrase. They could sway a crowd. And so people close to them overlooked obvious sinful patterns like pride or bullying or dishonesty or an obvious love of money or pleasure. And here's my point. You must not look simply on the outward when you're trying to determine if someone's true, genuine, You must look at the biblical criteria. That's the point. Someone might be able to turn a phrase, sway a crowd, be very persuasive, very compelling. And you might think, and I think this is a little haughty, even though it doesn't maybe feel haughty. You might think, I just know he's telling the truth. I've got this inner sense in me that says he's telling the truth. And he's so winsome too. No, you need the Bible. You need the Word of God. The, the, the sense in you that ought to rise up and say, no, he's, 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 whether he's genuine or not, it ought to be your biblical awareness of biblical truth and whether he is preaching and teaching and living like that. Do you follow? 
Now, what are we to do with such teachers? It's really clear in this passage. I love this, I love this passage. Titus 1.13 says, Rebuke them sharply so that they might be sound in the faith. And I love everything about that verse. There is much at stake for Christians who love the truth and love the gospel and love the church. Much at stake for them, right? When it comes to false teaching. So there are lots of reasons why we must rebuke them sharply. We cannot tolerate it. We cannot dance around it. They must be silenced, it says. For they are disrupting whole families. They, there's a reason why we must silence them. We want to protect the church. We want to protect Christians. But there's another explicit motivation in this verse, isn't there? Rebuke them sharply. That they may be sound in the faith. Paul does want to protect the flock. You see that everywhere in his writings, especially in the pastoral epistles. He does want Christian leaders to develop the voice of rebuke to ward off thieves and wolves. Like I talked about last week, he he also wants these false teachers to give up their lies and to trust in the work of Christ alone. Part of why we rebuke them sharply is for them. It is for their sake. It is owing to an evangelistic desire for the false teacher himself to come to Christ. We want them to turn from their deception to the Savior, our Lord Jesus Christ. The false teacher not only deceives others, he is himself, according to 2 Timothy 3.13, deceived. Listen to that passage. 2 Timothy 3, 12-13, it says, Indeed, all who desire to live a godly life in Christ Jesus will be persecuted, while evil people and impostors will go on from being bad to worse, deceiving and being deceived. That's the great tragedy for the false teacher. He or she is certainly dangerous to others, and he or she is certainly dangerous to himself or herself. Mr. False Teacher will begin to believe his lies. He will begin to excuse his own sin. He will begin to love the darkness and even think that his loving of the darkness is somehow loving light. He will cling to the flimsy assurance of a flimsy gospel that is no gospel and believe that he is okay with God even though his whole life denies Christ. And one day, here's the tragedy. And one day, if he persists, he will wake up in hell and realize he not only deceived others, but he himself was deceived. What is the hope for such a one? Oh, friends, I have good news. There is hope for him to be sound in faith. And the hope is Jesus. The hope is the gospel. If I'm understanding this passage properly, I obviously think I am. It seems that Paul believes that this person might be turned from his false teaching to the hope of the one true gospel, the hope that can be had by faith in Jesus alone. Don't you love the gospel? Even a liar, even an evil beast, even a lazy glutton, even a detestable person can find forgiveness of sins and hope and eternal life at the cross. That means there's hope for me. That means there's hope for you. No matter what your past is like, no matter how much your life has denied God, there's hope. Jesus is the hope for sinners. Jesus is our only hope. Therefore, Christian, 
Rebuke Mr. False Teacher sharply so that he might become sound in faith. Friends, there are dangers all along this journey to the celestial city that we're on together. There are those who would love to sway you from the path so that you might make much of them instead of making much of Jesus. Mr. Legality, Mr. Worldly Wisdom, Mr. False Teacher, they're not merely fictional characters in a very old book. They are real and here and in our context, and that ought to stir in you a desire to hold fast to God's Word. I think it's one of the biggest take-homes from this passage. We must cling to the Word. We must cling to the Gospel. Know the Word. Know the Gospel. Seek to be taught the Word. The danger is real. We can see it in our passage. We can see it in our context. We must hold fast to the trustworthy Word as taught in part so that we can rebuke those who contradict it. Those who insist on other ways to God, other ways to be holy, no matter what those other ways look like, no matter how pious, no matter how compelling they sound, there is only one way to be sound in the faith. There is only one way to be sound in faith. We must look to Jesus Christ alone. Is that your hope this morning? Are you clinging to Christ? Let's pray. Father, you're our only hope. You are our only hope. Lord, I pray that we, we would so love the gospel, so love your word, that when something contrary to that enters the picture, we immediately see it, know it, and are on guard and turn from it, and turn to the gospel. Thank you for the hope of Christ. Thank you for the hope that sinners have. Thank you that the hope that every sinner in this room can have in you, regardless of their past, regardless of the shame they feel when they think about different seasons of their life, they can turn to you and be saved. You save sinners. What great truths. I am a great sinner, and Christ is a great Savior. Oh, Lord, I pray that we would turn by faith in Christ today. Cling to that hope in life and in death. In Jesus' name, amen.